Hey folks, Jared here. Today we have Walker Mills hosting and he's joined by Dr. Hai Rian Zhang to discuss her doctoral thesis on Chinese escalation in maritime disputes. This episode was edited and produced by Marie Williams. We just launched the call for submissions for the SimSec forum for authors and readers over at the main website. If there was a particular piece that you enjoyed this year, nominate it. And if it gets enough votes, you can hear the author present his or her work. We've also officially put out our call for articles for the end of year fiction contest. So go over to SimSec.org for full details. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the SimSec Podcast Network, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drac, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. On that note, I'll turn it over to Kimber's men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Welcome back aboard the Sea Control Podcast from the Center for International Maritime Security. Today, we're talking with Dr. Hyrian Jang, who is a brand new PhD from the University of Florida. Today, we're going to be talking about her dissertation on Chinese escalation in the South China Sea. Helen, welcome aboard. Can you go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit more formally to our listeners? Hello, everyone. Thank you for inviting me to Sea Control podcast. I just defended my PhD dissertation this morning. I became a PhD from the Department of Political Science at the University of Florida. My research focuses on international security, resource insecurity, Chinese foreign policy, political methodology, and specifically maritime conflict between China and its South China Sea and its Chinese neighbors. And before we start, I'd like to remind our listeners that the opinions presented here are solely our own and should not be taken as representative of any of the institutions that we are associated with. The title of your thesis is is quite a mouthful, Selective Escalation in the South China Sea, China's Energy Mercantilism, Asymmetric Trade Dependence, and Militarized Maritime Disputes. So could you just start by kind of breaking that down and and explaining to us what what you wrote about? Sure. My research began from an interesting empirical puzzle. China has demonstrated an inconsistent behavior in its maritime disputes. When there was a fishing confrontation between China and Japan near Senkaku Island in the East China Sea in 2010, China did not use any military force. On the other hand, when there is another fishing confrontation between China and the Philippines near Scarborough Shore in 2012, China dispatched more than 100 vessels for more than a month and eventually took de facto control over the area. So my dissertation aims to explore this puzzle, why China escalates disputes in some regions but not others. I argue that when China suffers from high energy vulnerability, the Chinese government prioritizes energy mercantilism. As one of its energy mercantilist policies, China attempts to secure a stable flow of oil imports through the major oil shipping lanes and energy resources that are embedded in the South China Sea. Therefore, China may escalate low-intensity military actions more in the South China Sea than in the East China Sea. Unlike South China Sea, the East China Sea doesn't have a large energy reserve and close, uh, close proximity to the major shipping lanes. Moreover, China's energy mercantilism may lead it to confront its neighboring countries, which heavily rely on bilateral trade with China. These neighboring countries cannot retaliate economically, and China can use economic coercion to force them to de-escalate after its military escalation in the disputed area, which is basically South 
East Asian countries, the claimant of the South China Sea disputes. They are very asymmetrically dependent on China, but China, for China, they are not the major trading partners. Therefore, China can target Southeast Asian neighbors rather than Japan or South Korea, which are the major claimant of the East China Sea disputes, which is a key trading partner of China. And can you give us, Helen, maybe some examples of the the kind of disputes that you're talking about? I think our audience is probably familiar with some of them, but just, you know, so so we kind of know what we're talking about when we say uh, maritime disputes. China is engaging mainly two maritime disputes right now. One is in South China Sea, one is in East China Sea. South China Sea, um, China is engaging with uh, Vietnam, Philippines, Malaysia, Brunei. Um, they are the major uh, major claimants, and then uh, they they're they're uh, looking for their jurisdictions over the South China Sea. And in that regard, China used the low intensity military, also paramilitary actions, and then gradually increased its military projections throughout the region. On the process, China has a milit- has a conflict with the uh, Philippine, Vietnam, mainly uh, with those countries. For example. In 2012, the Philippines, I already mentioned briefly, uh, in 2012, the Philippines engaged in a military paramilitary confrontation with, with China. So it, that lasted more than a month because China basically blockaded the Scarborough shore. And then eventually Philippines withdrew from the region and then China took the, took the area. Then now it became a China's uh, territory so-called, internationally wrong, <laughs> but uh, that China took the uh, territory and then they are, now they are building another artificial island over Scarborough Shore. Um, in Vietnam cases, for example, in 2014, the, when China was or start oil digging around the Paracel Islands and China and v- Vietnam becoming very sensitive and send more uh, vessels over there and China reacted to more vessels on it, that conflict also lasted more than a month. So oil and then protecting the sea lines of communication, the do, those are the main key issues in the region between China and Southeast Asian neighbors. East China Sea conflict, it's um, between China, mainly China and Japan over Senkaku Islands. And then, but that area doesn't have that much nat- natural resources. There are some natural gas, but um, it's not major like South China Sea. So, so currently, Senkaku Islands is controlled by Japan and China want to challenge it. But so far, of course, China sent some Navy vessels, but uh, there's no major um, military conflict between Japan and China so far. That's why I think it's interesting comparison between East China Sea and South China Sea. Even though South China is way farther than East China Sea for, in terms of China's perspective, but China shows more aggressions in the South China Sea. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, and 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 that's part of the reason that that we wanted to bring you on the on the podcast is to kind of parse out why they have this different uh, reaction to disputes in the in the East China Sea and the South China Sea. And I know you kind of hit on it um, already, but you know what what's the what's the big conclusion that you came to? You know what what is, what is the difference between these two um, regions? So South China Sea has a way larger oil and natural gas reserve. According to United States Energy Information Administration's data, um, they expect that 11 billion barrels of oil and 190 trillion cubic feet of natural gas could be embedded in South China Sea. That's quite a large amount of natural resources. More than that, um, 
when China imports oil from Middle East and or North Africa, the, uh, the, those shipments passing through Indian Ocean and passing through the Strait of Malacca and the South China Sea eventually ended up to mainland China. On that train route, South China Sea are uh, located in a very critical position. And then all the, especially there are three main um, trading routes and then those all passing through South China Sea. And then around a, a lot along the line with those islands, there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of, islands which are under dispute so it's a very important but um, on the other hand east china sea cases um east china sea, east china sea itself is very far from major shipping lane we can also call the sea lines of communication but it's a it's very far from uh those a major um sea line uh sea line sea lines of communication because uh uh, before reaching even to East China Sea, those they can already reach it up on the mainland China. And then so far, there's not much oil reserve uh, detected un- underneath of um, the East China Sea. So in terms of those uh, energy mercantilistic perspective, um, South China Sea is much more valuable and much more critical for Chinese perspective than East China Sea. And I also want to ask, you talked some about uh, China's own uh, domestic perception of its dependence on uh, foreign petroleum. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about that. Is what, you know, what does China think about its own dependence on, on foreign petroleum? China has been sensitive to petroleum imports for a while. China needs more energy resources, a stable energy flow from the highly uncertain energy international market. And if insufficient energy supply significantly damage Chinese economy, which can damage Chinese regime survival. So as the level of China's oil import dependence increased in the early 1990s due to the, its rapid economic development, the Chinese government began to ha- have concerns about its energy security. Because in 1993, China ultimately became a net oil importer. And since then, the gap between oil production and oil imports um, has widened. Interestingly, China is a top number five oil producing country in the world, but China consumes all of them. And then China needs more oil import from Middle East and Africa. So in 2009, China relied on imported oil more than half of its oil consumption. So it's a really critical issues for China. Um, based on previous experience, the Chinese government believed that imported oil supplies are not really reliable. When China engaged in the Korean War in 1950, the United States embargoed oil shipments to China. Under the embargo, China had to rely on oil uh, imports from the Soviet Union. But however, after the Sino-Soviet split in the 1960s, China heavily suffered from lack of oil and energy insecurity. Since then, they, since then they have this kind of a very critical historical um, legacy on how, how important it is about energy security. So in the Chinese Communist Party elites made energy security as one of the top national interests officially and added it in China's 10th five-year plan between 2001 and 2005 for the first time since then, the energy security is one of the top Chinese national um, security issues. Um, more than that, China's energy mercantilism is not simply driven by energy demand. It is also by its fear and mistrust of the United States. There is widespread of fear in the Chinese government of the possibility that the United States may blockade the South China Sea, specifically Strait of Malacca. 
Um, since the Obama administration, the United States Navy sends, uh, has been sending its warships to South China Sea, which can trigger fear of the potential blockade of Strait of Malacca. It is hard to ignore that historical legacy. And then um, the level of mistrust of the United States not really decreased, more in- increased dramatically, especially when Western media and then academia highlights more potential hegemonic competition between China and the United States. When I conducted some interview with the American think tank personnel in Washington, D.C., no one really think that United States is capable of or willing to blockade the Syria Malacca, but that's, that those facts are not that important once there's a discourse about the possibility of the United States blockade has been constructed. It does not matter whether the United States can actually do that or not. So perception and the discourse um, we can also call it misperception, so it's already making the real threat perception within the Chinese government and perpetrating, then they made a foreign policy based on their uh, perception. Uh, that's how I uh, evaluate the Chinese um, government's overall thinking about the imported oil and why they, why they fear that much. Well, I think that's super interesting, and, and there's a lot in there that that I want to follow up on. I did not know that that China was a was a top five uh, oil producer, um, and I definitely have seen. I think some of the material you're referencing about uh, in U.S. think tanks and, and U.S. defense apparatus arguing that kind of a, a blockade strategy would be effective against China. So I, you know, I, I kind of understand that mentality. Are there um, major energy, major Chinese energy projects? They're looking to get petroleum over land. Um, I mean, do they have pipelines uh, coming in or is it all coming in um, through maritime routes? Because of this uh, high energy vulnerability situation, they wanted to build more uh, pipeline because it could be more stable than maritime shipment. So China tried to make a pipeline from the Kazakhstan, Russia and Myanmar. But first of all, Myanmar political situation has been not really stable. So that construction prolonged for a while. Russia, according to my interview with the Chinese think tank personnel in Beijing, they don't really trust Russia because uh, because the Russians oil company, natural gas company, they are really uh, running by nation, of course, Russia's own interest. And then uh, when Russia needs more uh, gas money, then they build more. But other than what, but they if they don't want, they just stop the construction. Or that's really also unreliable partner, according to uh, Chinese perspective. Um, and Kazakhstan, there's there's some, but uh, there's the limitations of the how much oil actually China can import through the pipelines. But still, major majority of. Uh, China's oil imports comes through the maritime route, and China also aware of this situation, of course, because maritime route can be dang- can be uh, dangerous. So they they used a lot of uh, diversification strategies. Pipeline is one of them. They try they made a more uh, big stockpiling. Sorry, they, China can survive 120 days without any extra oil support from outside. That's because they built the extra uh, stockpiles. And uh, China tried to diversify importing sources because if you solely rely on one country, Middle East, they cannot be trustable either. So China is doing a lot of diversification strategy, but still it's not, cannot really solve the fundamental issues because anyway, majority of oil comes through the maritime route. And then if China is not really controlling the South China Sea, they don't think it's really safe. I'm really struck by the similarities between 
uh, what you're describing in the situation prior to the Second World War, where, where Japan, the, the Japanese government was really worried about um, oil and energy security. Do you see some kind of parallels there? Or did you look at the Japanese example at all as you were doing your research? Thanks for a really interesting question. Actually, really, it's relevant to my next step project. When I started this project first, I was thinking China is a very unique case. But uh, once the, my research got, went through, I realized that China is not really a unique actor in that sense, because once the great power wants to rise, uh, it, during the process, they always need more energy resources. And Japan, pre-World um, War, the Second World War, a definitely good example that how energy-driven great power can be dangerous. But uh, that's another extreme case. But definitely um, rising great power needs more energy resources and they chronically suffer from those uh, perception of a high energy vulnerability. And China is one of one of those um, great power, I believe. And they wanted to secure energy resources and secure safe routes. And that's uh, China's uh, ultimate one of the ultimate goals, why China is so much like uh, assertive and aggressive in the region. Um, I also think some similarity between the when of the of the United States in the early 60s and 70s when United States more pay a lot of attention to Paris and Gulf. So every great power, I think, definitely especially when they are developing rising pace, they definitely need more energy resources. And then China is following that step. That's how I. Uh, perceive it. And then I want to develop my theories in that regard further. I think that's a really interesting take because obviously, you know, our, our listeners are familiar with, uh, with things like the Thucydides trap, um, Graham Allison's uh, work. And, but I think looking specifically at energy makes, makes that a little bit less abstract. Um, And you can look at cases like Japan, Germany, I think is another case where they were very worried about energy security, uh, even though it's not necessarily a maritime case. One of the things I want to follow up on is you mentioned that you got to interview people at think tanks, both in, in Washington, D.C. and in Beijing. And I just have to ask, you know, what what was this? What was the difference there? I, I mean, what kind of was there anything in particular that stood out perspective wise or any kind of unique insights that you felt like you got after interviewing both of those groups of people kind of side by side? Thank you for a good question. So I, that, that those interview process through my field work was very interesting. And when I was interviewing American think tank personnel, they are, uh, they have a, they try to find some big picture from my research project, like what's the United States take and then how, how China's, uh, China's uh, assertive behavior in the region can affect uh, East Asia in general. So like a regional security architect, how it affects that and then how it can be spiral into bigger conflict. They're more, they're really interested in those, those questions. This is because currently China is initiating low intensity, small incident, but, um, if they're, they also want me, they also want me to look into like where, whether there's any chance that those small incidents can have a chance to become a bigger conflict, eventually become a competition between United States and China. When I'm talking to Chinese think tankers now, uh, first of all, I, I this is my personal perception that uh, so Chinese experts, they wanted to uh, minimize their um, energy um, vulnerability level when I, when, when I directly talk to them. They think it's more efficiency issues. They don't, they're not really, they're not really afraid of uh, energy security issues. But uh, 
I can sense that there's definitely some tensions going on. And then I don't think I had really had an interview with open um, environment. So definitely uh, when I visited, especially China, it was uh, right after China defeated by the Philippines in the International Tribunal Court. So it was not really good timing. So, um, but uh, yeah, when I, when I talked to them and they wanted to, uh, they're more into like, argue that it's because of United States, because the United States tried to engage more. So we are more reacting. That's more their perspective. But uh, at the time, the United States didn't even send that much warships at the time to the, to the, to the region. And then they did not say anything about officially about South China Sea. So I think um, there's a little, how can I say? I, I think for Chinese, for Chinese think tank personnel, uh, I had a little difficulties in, in terms of get a true opinion from what they're thinking because of this closed um, authoritarian political culture. I just think that's super, super fascinating, both, uh, you know, that you were able to kind of contrast the two perspectives, but, and also kind of think a little bit deeper about, you know, what, what are they thinking, but potentially not saying, um, and, and kind of peek behind the curtain a little bit. So Helen, you know, I kind of, want to want to roll it up here and say well what based on your your research do you have recommendations for policymakers uh in the united states or in china i mean are you do you think that this is research that someone that a practitioner or policymaker can 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 learn some lessons or, or kind of gain some valuable insights from the current literature and media focuses on the assumption that China has an unlimited ambition and demonstrated a uniformly aggressive foreign policy behavior in its maritime disputes, especially recently, a lot of news focus on that. But however, after collecting data and testing multiple hypotheses using interdisciplinary methodologies, I com- I'm confident to argue that China has a rather selective escalation strategy with a limited aim in the regional maritime disputes. disputes. China's real vulnerability came comes from energy security. China aimed to secure major shipping lanes, energy resources. China also does not want to sacrifice any important trading part- partnership with the major trading partners. So one of the good examples is in 2010, when there's a conflict between China and Japan in the East China Sea, China banned the rare earth materials. Of course, not, they didn't do anything officially, but um, allegedly. So they... Um, impose a ban on rare earth exports to Japan. That was a, for short term, that was effective. But Japan, in the long term, after 2010, they find alternative sources. So they gradually decreases the amount of uh, um, rare earth material imports from China. So China doesn't want those uh, sacrifice anymore, for, like which can be harm into economic development in the long term. So in my perspective, American government also understood that China's aggression in South China Sea has been developed from unlimited great power ambition. Um, from Trump administration, especially the United States Navy, more often than dispatched its vessel to the South China Sea. And Biden administration's policy is not so much different from that. So this kind of policy can be easily interpreted as a sign of beginning of great power competition. But instead, I think it is important to think back to the United States previous experiences when United States was rising and then like how energy resources was better value when tried to control, tried to uh, project more foreign policy, foreign policy toward uh, in the Middle East, they kind of uh, at the time. So South China Sea is very essential for China in that regard. China wanted to secure energy resources. And then that's why China used energy mercantilism. Because of that, China um, 
um, China tried to show um, assertive aggressive behavior in the region. Um, it's critical to understand China's limited aim and critical vulnerability in the South China Sea. Then I believe this could be my one of the biggest contributions to the field because it's not everything is not about China's unilateral behavior and then like unlimited aims. It's more about China's limited goal, energy security around the South China Sea disputes. And before jumping into these disputes, I think any I'm, either United States or neighboring countries, it's very important to understand like what's really underlying aim and goal and then uh, like how, how China wants to project in the region, it's very important to understand those things before um, executing any critical uh, foreign policy in, to the region. Helen, I think we're just about out of time. Um, but before we go, I want to ask you uh, what you're working on now, kind of what, what projects we might see from you in, in the future. Um, and then if anywhere, where our listeners can, uh, can find you and follow you online. I aim to expand my dissertation to the dynamics between international oil politics, trade security, and gray power politics. So I'm collaborating with Benjamin Smith from my department and developing one paper about the dynamics of oil and interstate conflict within the context of evolving global oil market that is characterized by rising and falling gray powers. So I constructed a new data set on the international oil trade network uh, and conducted spatial network analysis so since 2012, China became a center of the network, and overall, all producing countries are not bellicose towards their neighbors, regardless of the alliance pattern. However, all producing countries allied with the United States during Cold War tend to be aggressive. But this is interesting finding, and um, we are going to develop this paper, and then we'll submit to the one of our academic journals soon. So um, if you're interested in my work, I'm currently in Florida and I'm also actively on the job market right now. Um, you please visit my website, uh, www.hyeryeonjang.com or send me an email, hrjang52 at ufl.edu. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And you have to let us know when you publish so we can have you back on the podcast. I'd like to thank my guest again. Hyrian Jang for joining us today and talking about her thesis on Chinese escalation in maritime disputes. Take care.